Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, now is the time in our worship service to you that we look into your word. Father, I pray for the articulation, the words to convey your truth. Father, not my truth, not man's truth, your truth. Father, I pray your blessing on this message. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, many of you have never heard of Felix Manns. He was a student of Swiss reformer Ulrich Zingwilly in the 1500s. But Manns and others became dissatisfied with Zwingli because they did not believe that Zwingli's reforms went far enough. On January 21st, 1525, a group of people met at Mann's house, forming a new fellowship of faith based on baptism following public confession of faith in Jesus Christ. At that time, the church practiced infant baptism, and to advocate anything else was considered rebellion. That night, Conrad Grable baptized George Blalock, who then baptized Grable and others at the gathering, and thus were born the Swiss Brethren. But Zwingli gave them another name, derisively calling them Anabaptists or Rebaptizers. He was successful in getting the Zurich City Council to pass a law making rebaptism punishable by death. The penalty, we pra- the penalty was thought to be appropriate. Those who rebaptized were to be drowned. On January 5th, 1527, Felix Manns was bound and taken by boat onto the Lamont River, where he was pushed into the water to die by drowning. His crime? He practiced believer's baptism. The same baptism we practice today. And his death was followed by over 300 others. Three weeks ago, we began looking at the strong bonds of the church. We took a break to talk about citizenship on Independence Day weekend. We've been considering the things that unified the first church. And we learned from Acts 2 that the members of that first church in Jerusalem had several things in common. They were called by Christ. They were drawn by the gospel. They were given the Holy Spirit by whom we are sealed. And they publicly declared their union with him through obedience and baptism. And in addition, we learned from Acts 2.42 the priorities of the first church. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread or the Lord's Supper, and prayers. The first week we considered three of these, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and prayers. Last week, he looked at the breaking of bread, or the Lord's Supper. And if you recall, I'm trying to change from calling it communion, because it's so much more than communion. It's more than communing with Christ and His body. And you recall what we learned about the Lord's Supper. First, it is a perpetual command of Christ. It's to be observed regularly. The Lord's Supper is first and foremost a memorial of Christ and His redemptive death but it is also a seal and a sign of God's grace. But it's more than just a remembrance or a memorial. It's a time of anticipation of his return, and it's a blessing and a celebration. We don't celebrate alone. We take the Lord's Supper as an assembly. The whole body together is one. 
And that's why we, we concluded that the Lord's Supper is a strong bond of Christ's church. This morning, I want us to examine the other ordinance, the ordinance of baptism. Recall that baptism and the Lord's Supper are considered the two ordinances of the Christian church. This is because they were commanded by Christ or ordered. We don't call them sacraments, as does the Roman Catholic Church. They are not a means of grace by which a person is saved. Despite what the Roman Church teaches, we are saved only through faith in Jesus Christ alone, not through any actions of our own. And so we observe the ordinances not to obtain grace, but to obey God. To help us understand believers' baptism, I want us to consider several different aspects. The who, the what, the when, the where, the how, and the why, although not in that order. I know what you're thinking. He just can't let this police stuff go, can he? Well, let's look at our first point. What is baptism? What is baptism? Well, baptism, like the Lord's Supper, was a concept by which Jesus' disciples would have been somewhat familiar The Lord's Supper was instituted when Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. The parallels between the significance of Passover and Jesus' sacrifice for sin are apparent and indeed intended. And you recall that just as Passover was to be a regular observance, so is the Lord's Supper. There was a parallel. Well, the Jews also had a parallel for baptism. They practiced ceremonial and purification cleansings. Aaron and his sons were washed as part of the consecration of priests. All of Israel was washed as they were consecrated prior to appearing before the Lord on Mount Sinai. In Mark 7, 3 and 4, we find the author's comment that the Jews had a tradition of washing their hands and cups and copper vessels and dining couches. And Hebrews 9, 10 speaks of various washings. Gentile converts to Judaism were known to have practiced a form of self-baptism or self-immersion while citing the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4. And you're familiar with it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they would recite that as they were converting. Mark 1.4 tells us that John the Baptist proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, John's baptism did not result in the forgiveness of sins, but rather was an act undertaken by the baptized person to indicate his own repentance, that he had, he had turned from his evil ways. And like the baptism practiced by the Gentile converts, John's baptism signified the person's change of heart in following God. Well, what then is baptism? It's a rite undertaken by a person to show a changed heart. A heart committed to following God. But for believers, it's more than that. And we're going to explore this under our third point, the the why. But for now, I want to go to our second point. How is baptism performed? We had the what, what is baptism, and now we have the how, how is baptism? baptism performed. Many of you know the word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to cleanse by dipping or submerging, to wash, to make clean with water. And those who contend that immersion is not required, 
They hold that a fusion, not effusion, a fusion with an A, or the pouring of water on the head is sufficient for baptism. And as always, we turn to Scripture to understand of what baptism consisted. Well, Matthew 3, 4 through 17 and Mark 1, 4 through 11 give the account of Jesus' baptism. So I'd like you to turn to Mark 1 and let's take a look at his account. Mark 1, 4 through 11, follow along as I read. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then from verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately... He saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven or a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. Well, let's take note of a couple of things in this passage. The first is in verse five. Note that John was baptizing in the river Jordan in the river Jordan. Now, if John's baptism was merely pouring water over the head of someone. Why did they need to go into the river? Why not bring a, a bucket of river or bucket of water up? Verse 9 tells us that Jesus was baptized in the river Jordan. And verse 10 tells us that the Spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove as he came up out of the water. The descriptions given by Mark clearly and strongly imply immersion. But let's look elsewhere. Now turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, and we'll start with verse 26. And follow along with me as I, as I read. Actually, we're going to uh, yeah, start with verse, uh, verse 26. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and 
heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. And then pay attention here as we look at verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water and Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. This was the account, and you're all familiar with it, of the Ethiopian eunuch. But looking carefully at verse 36 and 37, as they were going to the road, they came upon some water. And the eunuch says, hey, look, water. And he asks, what's keeping him from being baptized? Now, this is a guy anxious to get baptized. Now, if effusion or pouring out of water on the head was sufficient for baptism, why did the eunuch have to wait to find water? Didn't he carry water in his caravan for his journey? And certainly there would have been enough to, to pour over his head. And even if they were rationing water along the way because they were taking this long trip, you can use your sanctified imagination to consider that the eunuch in his excitement would probably be willing to forego his afternoon sip so he could be baptized. He was that anxious. In verse 38 and 39, we read that both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and that they came up out of the water. Once again, immersion is strongly implied. But Pastor Jeff, you say, what about Leviticus 4.6 and 14.51, Acts 1.5, Mark 7.3, 1 Corinthians 10.2, Hebrews 9.10-23. These verses don't imply immersion. Well, thank you for asking. In Leviticus, we read that cedar wood, hyssop, a live bird, and Scarlet yarn were dipped in blood and the blood was then sprinkled on the person to be cleansed. Hebrews speaks of sprinkling as a means of purification. And Mark 7.3 talks of hand washing, not total immersion, but uses the same word, baptizo. So then which is the preferred method? Is it a fusion or is it immersion? Well, Scripture doesn't tell us exactly. But immersion is strongly implied. May I share with you what I think settles the argument? In Matthew and Mark, we read that Jesus was immersed. If we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, as we learn in Romans 8.29... 
why would we not want to imitate him who was baptized to fulfill all righteousness? If Christ was immersed, I want to be immersed. And here at Grace Bible Church, we practice full immersion. Now, we do need to be reasonable. I believe Scripture gives us some room for this. We're not going to force a person who is confined to a bed or confined to a wheelchair and insist that that person be immersed. And we're not going to insist that a person who is baptized by a, a fusion at a church that practices sprinkling or pouring out over the water of the head is not legitimately baptized as long as it was after he was saved and not merely done as an infant. You see, the mode of baptism is secondary to the fact of baptism. Now we've looked at the what and the how of baptism. Now let's look at the next point, the why of baptism. The what, the how, and now the why. The first answer to the question of why we were baptized is simple. Because Jesus commands it. Turn to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Now you know this passage. We refer to it as the Great Commission. And it's most often used in regards to missions. This is the one we cite when we talk about missions. Go and make disciples. But follow along, I want you to look at it, what it says in full. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Some things to notice in this passage. The first thing to notice is that Jesus has the authority to give this command. He said that not some, but all authority in both heaven and on earth has been given to him. There is nowhere that Jesus' authority does not extend. And only God has this type of authority. So while it is a sin to disobey the commandments of God, it is a sin, therefore, to disobey the commandments of Christ, who is God. If Jesus commands disciples to be baptized, then to not be baptized is plainly a sin. Notice that baptism follows disciple-making. Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Being baptized is part of being a disciple of Jesus. And he said to make disciples of all nations, not merely the sons of Abraham. Recall in Revelation 7, 9, that a great multitude beyond number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. If the disciples were to go to all nations, then no one is excused from this command. And not only are we to make disciples and baptize them, 
We are to teach them to observe all that Christ commanded. Well, this then includes baptism. It includes the Lord's Supper, the two ordinances of the Christian church among everything else he commanded. And Jesus also gives a a condition regarding baptism. He said to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now many of you already know that the use of the singular name and not names is a direct reference to our triune God. And here Jesus, the Son, is identifying his place within the unity of the Trinitarian Godhead. Recall earlier when I said that the Shema was, or the baptism was known to the Jews and that the Shema was pronounced as Gentile converts were being immersed? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Well, see, this too is a reference to the unity of the Godhead in both cases. Now, turn to Romans 6, 3 through 5. And follow along as I read Romans 6, 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Now, the first thing to notice here is that in baptism, we are joined to Christ in his death. If Christ did not die, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, baptism is not the action that unites us with Christ. Faith is. But baptism symbolizes this union, this identification with Christ's death. It's a symbol We know that the penalty for sin is death and that Jesus paid that penalty for us. And unless we rely on Jesus, rely on his death for the payment of that penalty, we have no forgiveness. So we are joined to him and claim his death for our own. Now, not only do we identify with Christ's death, verse 4 tells us that we were buried with him as well. Burial is proof of death. And Jesus was buried in the tomb. Going under the water in baptism is representative of burial. And the purpose of this is to show that as Christ was raised from the dead, we too are raised to a newness of life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. And this is the promise of verse 5. If we are joined to Christ in his resurrection, then we are sure to be resurrected like he was. But there is no resurrection and new life if the old life has not died. This then is reflective of regeneration, of being born again. 
Then another important passage about baptism is in Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Listen as I read this to you. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the old body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul is talking here about a spiritual circumcision, a, a cutting away of sinful flesh from the body. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament contain references pertaining to the circumcision of the heart. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Israel was told to circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. In Deuteronomy 36 God told Israel that he would circumcise your heart and in the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. In Jeremiah 4 and Jeremiah 9, he promises a day of wrath and punishment for those whose hearts are not circumcised. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 28 and 29 that true circumcision is not physical but spiritual, a matter of the heart. The circumcision of Christ then refers and reflects a changed heart. And only Christ can do this. Verse 13 says that we are dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. But God made us alive. Dead people do not raise themselves. You cannot will yourself to have a changed heart. Otherwise, it would be a work that we do, one that would be meritorious of salvation. And how is this changed heart exhibited? Well, it's depicted in baptism. Buried with Christ, resurrected by God. And then note, what, note the means by which this resurrection occurs. Verse 12 says, you were buried with him through faith in the powerful working, or you were raised with him, I'm sorry, you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Well, we know from Ephesians 2.8 that by grace you have been saved through faith. Genesis 15.6 says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 11 contains what we call the roll call of faith. It lists the Old Testament saints who were commended through their faith. Their faith led to their actions. Their actions demonstrated their faith. And Peter talks about baptism in 1 Peter 3.21. Having noted that eight people were saved from the waters of judgment in Noah's Ark, he writes, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism does not cleanse us, but it does represent our inward faith. It is based on our appeal to God for the forgiveness of sins. And this is what Peter means when he says a good conscience, the forgiveness of our sins. And it is predicated only on the resurrection of Christ, 
not on our own works. So while baptism then is a symbolic of the identification and union with Christ and with the believer's repentance and forgiveness of sin, it is not itself a means of salvation. If baptism were necessary for salvation, Jesus was either mistaken or he lied when he told the criminal crucified alongside him, today you will be with me in paradise. Neither mistake nor falsehood is a hallmark of God. Any thought that baptism is necessary for salvation only contradicts scripture, but also then brings into the question of the deity of Christ. If he was mistaken or he lied, he couldn't be God. But Pastor Jeff, you say, if baptism doesn't impart salvation, why do some churches baptize infants? Well, thank you for asking. Baptizing infants is known as pedobaptism. And those who practice pedobaptism often refer to the Old Testament sign of circumcision. They say as circumcision signified participation in the Abrahamic covenant, baptism signifies participation in the new covenant community. But this is a defective argument. For starters, circumcision applied only to male babies. Does this then mean that only male babies are eligible to be baptized into the new covenant community and female babies aren't? Second, circumcision as a sign was given to those born into the old covenant community. No evidence of a changed heart was necessary. And indeed, this was a problem for the people of Israel. They they didn't have hearts turned towards God. We read that repeatedly in the Old Testament. And then finally, if baptism is a symbol of a regenerated heart, how can an infant exhibit that? Now, some paedobaptists argue that the practice of infant baptism can be tra- traced back to the early church. They say the first reference is seen as far back as 150 A.D., It was widespread then in the church community. And evidently, there wasn't a lot of controversy about it. But they also agree that infant baptism is not mentioned anywhere in Scripture. Nowhere do you find infant baptism. Nor is it explicitly mentioned in any of the documents of the early church. So their argument is an argument from silence. They say that since there was no known protest... There must have been widespread acceptance. Now, while this might seem to be a compelling argument, it means that they're not relying on Scripture, but on the traditions of men. Jesus condemned condemned the same practice among the Pharisees in Mark 7. For these reasons, Grace Bible Church does not practice infant baptism. And I will tell you as your pastor that if your salvation is based solely on the fact that you were baptized as an infant and not on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ, then you are not saved. Hear me again on this. If your salvation is based solely on the fact that you were baptized as an infant and not on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone, you are not saved. 
Now this leads to our fourth point. Who should be baptized? Who should be baptized? We know the, the what and the how, the why, and now the who. Baptism is only for those who profess Christ. If you do not confess that Jesus is Lord and place your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins, then getting baptized is meaningless. How can you identify with something you don't believe? This is why we call it believer's baptism. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you do that, you must be baptized. It's a command of Christ. If he is Lord, you will do what he commanded. And this is the pattern we see repeatedly in the New Testament. In Acts 2, the passage which we started this whole series with, you recall what Peter told the crowd who was seeing and hearing the disciples on the day of Pentecost. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is what marked the members of the Christian community. The Ethiopian eunuch was baptized. Saul, who became the apostle Paul, was baptized. The Roman centurion Cornelius and his whole family were baptized. Lydia and his whole house, or her whole household were baptized. The Philippian jailer and his household were baptized. Today, baptism still marks the Christian community. For baptism, or for many, the baptism is the first public declaration of their faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism is an announcement to the world that a person has turned from their sins and is following Jesus. It is an announcement and demonstration of their new birth. It is their identification with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in whose name they are being baptized. For many, it's a serious step that can result in severing ties with family and friends. Well, for example, in the Muslim faith, those who are baptized into Christ are disowned by their family, disowned by their parents. In Taiwanese culture, the worship of ancestors is paramount. They believe that one's family provides for their spirit in death. Many Taiwanese do not have a problem if their children say they're Christians. But if a child is baptized, Christianity takes on a whole new meaning and one that causes them to despair and to panic. They recognize that baptism means their child is serious about worshiping only Christ and not his ancestors. For the Anabaptists, it brought persecution and death. For many churches, including Grace Bible Church, baptism is a requirement for membership. It is an affirmative declaration of salvation. And it is a first step in the outward obedience to Christ. I ask you, how can one profess that Christ is Lord and yet refuse to obey even this command? Baptism is a significant means by which the church attests to someone's salvation. Now, for some, this can be a difficult doctrine to grasp, and I don't mean to impugn anyone's salvation. 
But again, I must ask, how can you profess that Jesus is your Lord, yet refuse to obey his command to be baptized? And this takes us to our last point. When and where should a person be baptized? So we've looked at the what, the how, the why, the who, and now we're looking at the when and the where. Well, the when is also easily answered in Scripture. In each of the examples I gave you earlier, people were baptized almost immediately upon conversion. The Ethiopian eunuch was baptized after conversion as soon as he and Philip came upon some water. Saul, known as the Apostle Paul, was baptized as soon as he could see again, three days after encountering Jesus on the road to Damascus. The Roman centurion Cornelius and his household were baptized immediately after conversion. Lydia and her household were baptized immediately after they responded to the gospel given by Paul. The Philippian jailer and his household were baptized the same night they were saved. They were each eager to follow the Lord and profess their allegiance and their identification with Christ. Now as to the where, there's no requirement. We know that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. And we can infer that Lydia was baptized in a river. We don't know what type of water, <coughs> excuse me, we don't know what type of water the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip came upon. Was it a river? Was it a lake? Was it an oasis? We, we don't know. We can infer Cornelius and his household were baptized at home. We know that Saul was in Damascus when he was baptized. And we don't know where the Philippian jailer was baptized, but it was before he took Paul and Silas to his house. And we do know that baptism was witnessed. There is no such thing as a baptism done where there are no witnesses. It is a public declaration. And it appears in Scripture that there were multiple others present when New Testament saints were baptized. The crowd at Pentecost was present when there was baptism. There were the members of the Ethiopian eunuch's caravan present when he was baptized. Paul and Ananias, when Paul was baptized, may have had Paul's traveling companions present with him. We know that Cornelius and his household, when they were baptized, Peter was there, the whole household was there, and people that traveled with Peter. Lydia and his household, or her household, along with Paul and Silas, were present for their baptism. And the Philippian jailer and his household were all present for each baptism, along with Paul and Silas. At Grace Bible Church, we commonly practice baptism before the church. What a wonderful time. The church gets to hear the person's testimony. The church observes the person's identification with Christ. And the person celebrates. Or the church celebrates with the person being baptized. If you haven't attended a baptism service here, it's a time of joy. It's a time of celebration. A new life declared in Christ. But accommodation can be made to do so before a smaller gathering, such as a, a community group. See, the concern again is that baptism is done in the presence of others, that there are those who witness. It is a public declaration, a public sign, a public symbol of identification with Christ. So let me share with you some, some thoughts on this. What are we to say then about baptism? Well, we've looked at the who, the what, the when, the where, the how, and the why. 
or rather the what, how, why, who, when, and where. Baptism is an ordinance of the church. It's given by Jesus himself. And indeed, Jesus himself was baptized by John. Baptism is a symbol, a testimony, a demonstration of a person's identification with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And as such, we practice full immersion, not pouring or effusion. And as practiced by the early church and demonstrated in Scripture, baptism follows conversion. Baptism does not confer salvation. It is not a means of grace. This would be contrary to what Scripture tells us. And baptism is for believers only. We do not baptize infants because babies can't believe. And non-believers, well, baptism for them is meaningless. There's no change of heart. And we know that a, a believer's refusal to be baptized is a sin. It is willful disobedience to Christ's command. Now, I know there are some here among us that are saved but have never been baptized. And I know there are some who don't join the church because they haven't been baptized. Refusal to be baptized can take many forms. Some refuse because they haven't understood the significance of baptism. Some refuse because they're afraid of speaking before a group of people when it comes time to share their testimonies. Some might refuse because they're concerned about their appearance. Some refuse because they've been Christians for a long time and are embarrassed that they haven't yet been baptized. Some have even gone so far as to say that they feel it would seem to negate years of, or even decades of Christian service as if they were not really saved when they did so. Let me say this, if you are one who has not been baptized or who refuses to be baptized, I urge you to consider and I urge you to pray about what you've heard today. Jesus commanded us to be baptized. And there are no unlesses. There are no accepts. Baptize unless you are afraid of water. Be baptized unless you are worried about what you will say to others. Be baptized except those who've been Christians for a long time. Be baptized except those who are concerned about their appearance. To all of these, I say, put away your fears, your anxieties, your excuses for not following Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Show your love for Jesus and be baptized. And especially to those who might be embarrassed because they've been Christians or attending church for a long time without being baptized. Let me tell you what a great testimony and an example to others it would be when someone humbles himself and follows the Lord. And I guarantee you, people will not judge you. Rather than judge, they will rejoice with you. What a time. Baptism is not just another church rite. Felix Mann's and over 300 others were martyred because they chose to follow Christ in believers' baptism. To them, it was a central doctrine. And how can we treat it any differently today? Baptism is a strong bond of Christ's church. 
We have baptism in common with the saints of the past. We have baptism in common with the saints of the present. And we have baptism in common with the saints of the future. I ask you, why not share in it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you and, and stand in awe and wonder of the, the amazing thing baptism is. Lord, a visual depiction of our identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Buried to sin, raised in the newness of life. New creations, reborn, regenerated by your Holy Spirit. Father, we know that obedience is a commandment and we desire to obey you. Father, I pray for all those here. Lord, first that those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior would come to know him, would come to place their faith in him alone regardless of what they may have heard at other churches or other faiths. We know that we are saved by grace We are saved through faith. And this isn't of our own. It is a gift of God. So that no one may boast. Father, we are not saved by our works. All throughout Scripture we read that it is faith that commends a person to righteousness. Not what he does. What he believes. And how he acts on that belief. Father, I pray for those who know you, who have been reluctant to be baptized for whatever reason. Father, I pray that you remove from them any fears that they have, any anxieties, any concerns, any embarrassments, any pride that may keep them from being baptized. Father, I pray that you, you cause them to come forward, to, to joyfully partake, to joyfully celebrate. Father, that we may celebrate with them. And that their testimony might lead others to you. Might lead others to follow and obey Christ. Lord, I pray your blessing on this assembly now. Father, I pray you watch over us this next week. Turn our hearts toward you. Father, help us to, to read scripture, to meditate on scripture, to apply scripture, and to obey scripture. In all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.